0: After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits.
1: Welcome to another episode of the David vs. Goliath podcast. I'm here with my business partner, Stan Guype, and esteemed trial lawyer, Kyle Newman from New York City, Hails uh, out of the Bronx. You're originally from Long Island, right?
2: Originally from Long Island. Uh, actually, originally uh, born in Brooklyn, uh, but yeah, spent most uh, of my uh, growing up in uh, on the South Shore in Merrick, and then on the North Shore in Cold Spring Harbor.
1: I remember you saying Cold yep. Spring Harbor. Wally Zerbiak, the star basketball player out right there. So today we're going to discuss birth injury law. Um most of Kyle's practice, I mean, he does a lot of, uh, you know, the whole gamut of personal injury. So third-party and first-party uh, personal injury work, but a big portion of your practice, I'd say, is medical malpractice. Correct. And it, it's again, I know I said this in a prior podcast, is rare for a gentleman or a woman your age to have tried so many cases before the age of 40, and especially in med mal, you don't really ever see that. So we're going to get a little bit more granular today. We're going to discuss birth injury law and really where do physicians... And I would say medical providers, that includes hospitals, radiology centers, where do they deviate and grossly deviate from the normal standard of practice where you see birth injuries that are a result of medical malpractice?
2: Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Of course. At least in New York City, the vast majority of the cases that we see come from city hospitals where, yeah, I would definitely say the vast majority, because what what I think is that you know a lot of these hospitals are extremely crowded, understaffed. And one of the main things that we see, especially in birth injury cases, is a failure to monitor during labor and delivery and failure to monitor for fetal distress, fetal abnormalities, all types of funky stuff that we'll find where the fetal heart tracings are either missing or there were really bad things that were shown for a long period of time where really no one was paying attention to it. Um, I think unfortunately that can happen in some more overcrowded, larger hospitals that are serving really a poor, more working class community. You know, my office has been in the Bronx for the past 15 years. So, you know, we see a lot of the city hospitals up there, North Central Bronx, Lincoln Hospital, as well as the hospitals in Queens and Brooklyn. But, um, you know, that's definitely a common thing that you'll see even in the, the non-traditional, you know, non-city hospitals where really the crux of the case is a failure to monitor the fetus for, you know, fetal distress. And, you know, for any parents out there that may be listening to this, may have any interest in potential birth injuries, one of the most important things when a parent is going through labor and delivery is the monitoring of both the mom for her contractions and the fetus for the fetal heart rate, which is that band that they put around the mom's waist during labor. And, you know, still these days, even though there's electronic medical records, this is really one of the big issues that I have these days with electronic medical records, in particular birth injury cases in New York, is that the only part of the record that is not electronic is the fetal heart tracing, which is actually getting printed out in the bedroom, you know, next to the patient, okay? That's that little strip of paper that's being printed out while a mom is going through Going through labor, so what often happens, and I just had a case uh, on, with a major hospital in New York, where which was only a few years old, where the hospital just lost the fetal heart tracing, could not find it. That we they they pr- produced it was something like five minutes of tracing, uh, for a, uh, it was like a four plus hour labor where there were no, no it's still going. Uh, we actually had a yeah, we, so we actually we we moved
1: Did that case go trial.
2: Like, what the hell?
1: That, that'll be a negative yeah,
2: inference, so, though. So, so, Sure. So when a critical piece of evidence is missing, you can make a motion um, to have the jury and the judge basically um, presume that that piece of evidence, because it's missing, is negative or adverse to the other side. So in this case, you have probably the most important piece of evidence, the most objective piece of evidence in the case, which is the fetal heart tracing, that is inexplicably missing. There's nothing in the in the chart that says continuous monitoring should have been discontinued, which is would be ridiculous, because the standard of care when you go into active labor and you're brought to the hospital and you are put in the, the labor and delivery ward is to have a continuous fetal monitoring. Why? Because the that fetal heart rate is so important to monitor because trained doctors, trained nursing staff are able to look at it and tell whether or not the baby is being deprived of oxygen during the course of labor and delivery, which can happen for a multitude of reasons. You could have the cord wrapped around the neck. There could be placental insufficiency. There could be positioning issues. It could just be from the contractions of the mother, a million different things. But the bottom line is, the longer that you deprive a a healthy fetus of oxygen, the more likely you're going to have a baby who's born with potentially permanent brain damage. And that's
1: hypoxia.
2: Hypoxia, right. So fetal Explain what that is. Sure. So in our we breathe in air oxygen um and that circulates through our it goes into our lungs and circulates through our body and when that oxygen is cut off so in the womb uh, babies aren't breathing like we are they get their um, oxygen and nutrients through the placenta and when that is cut off or intermittently you know contracted or pressed down upon whether by contractions or, or otherwise it can cut off oxygen and blood flow with healthy nutrients and oxygen to the baby's brain. And uh, the fetus actually is one of the most res- uh, responsive, when a baby is a fetus, a fetus can actually withstand uh, more trauma than an ordinary person can because of the whole tumultuous way that we're born. We're pushed through a, you know, a canal, we're squeezed through there, there's contractions that are going on which can uh, intermittently compress the blood flow and the oxygen to the baby, which is normal, But if there's a prolonged period where that blood flow and that oxygen is cut off, um, that can cause permanent damage. And that's what hypoxia, if you you hear the term hypoxia or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, that is basically referring to when the baby's blood flow. So there's certain portions of the brain that are more susceptible to hypoxic uh, occurrences. So portions of the brain will start to die and actually be injured Earlier than others, for instance, there's a part of the brain, the periventricular leukomalacia, so yeah, which is, one, the, right, is the watershed area of the brain, which is, is, is one of the most susceptible portions of the brain um, to hypoxic injury. So when there's a deprivation of oxygen, that will be one of the first areas to go to, to be injured. So there's, there's a, a multitude of different ways to assess a baby after they're born. For instance, there's uh, something called an APGAR uh, score, which you know parents you might-, do that might... What,
1: one in five minutes after the baby's right. born. So the, the, I just had a baby this past week, so I, I saw that in real time.
2: So interestingly enough, so the APGAR score does not come from a doctor. It actually comes from a nurse, nurse APGAR, which um, is a totally subjective test where basically after the baby is born, typically a nurse will assess the baby at one minute, five minute, and nine minutes or 10 minutes to assess for things like tone, color, breathing, you know, things like that. And they basically add it up to, it can be anywhere from one to nine. So the lower lower down on the APGAR scale, the more unresponsive or the more potential that that baby has for a hypoxic injury. I've had cases where a baby was born with perfect nine Apgars, and there still was a brain injury that we we were able to prove. So it's not you know the end all be all. You know when it comes to brain injury cases, the other real important things that we look at always are the uh, blood gases. So there's there's arterial and venous blood gases that are typically taken after a baby is born, and those can show based on different levels of the pH, which measures the base acid balance in a baby's in their blood which can also give clues as far as whether there was a hypoxic event how long it was whether it occurred you know early on in the labor later on in the labor and these th- to all these things these are of course topics that we learn as medical malpractice attorneys but these are things that we rely on our experts to tell us once they review the medical records and that to you Back to your original point is one of the challenges with these cases is getting the complete medical record in a timely fashion so that we can then have it fully reviewed by, you know, an experienced expert who's typically, you know, an obstetrician, there might be pediatrics, neurology, to review it to see whether or not there were any departures from the standard of care, which is really the standard that you're looking for in all of these cases, whether the doctor or the hospital nursing staff departed from the accepted standard in these cases, would be obstetrical care.
3: Okay, let me ask you if, to kind of back up and almost dumb it down for a laymen a little bit, we've used a lot of medical terms, things like that. If someone's sitting there, you know, you've just delivered a baby, okay, what is it this mother and father should be watching for to give them an indication that something may have gone wrong, something they need to look a little deeper into? Like, what are the red flag signs a parent should be looking for?
2: So that's a great question, Stan. So, if you've ever had a child before, I would say the first thing is whether your child, your newborn, is reacting and acting in the similar or similar way to your previous births. Whether they're able to latch, suck, and and you know uh, drink breast milk. What how their GI movements are happening in the first days of life. Ultimately, when they open their eyes, whether there's any. Eye rolling or esotropia or abnormal eye movements is kind of usually a clue early on.
1: What's esotropia?
2: Esotropia, which is like outward and inward eye rolling. So that that can be a sign of neurological injury. And uh, what what else? Also, the baby's tone. So one of the things that they're measuring in the APGAR score is a tone. So, so if a baby is born essentially like floppy, where there's no muscle tone, the baby... Isn't able to kind of tense or, or anything like that. That can be also a sign of neurological injury because those parts of the brain that are affected by these cases, where there's a hypoxic insult, it also affects the the baby's muscle tone, which is controlled by autonomic nervous uh, autonomic um, uh, the the autonomic nervous system.
3: All right, so is it more just, like, as a parent, they're looking to see, is there something different in the way this baby's behaving than my prior babies, or even something that you feel as a parent seems a little off? Your baby's not as active, like you say, the eyes. You know, just something that seems off should cause you to look a little deeper.
2: You got to look at the baby's breathing, whether they're able to put on weight. Stan, one of the big challenges that, that I found, okay, and where most parents really first recognize that there might be something wrong with their child is when the baby fails to meet their developmental milestones. That's really the, the key in so many of these cases where, especially if you're a new parent, you have no idea what you're, you're looking at. You're terrified. You know, you're trying to keep a, a human alive. And babies, essentially, whether or not they have, you know, are injured at birth may act and behave the same way. I mean they they have their eyes closed, they're basically eating, sleeping, pooping, and that might not be one of the things that are disrupted in that baby's life because of a, because of a birth injury. So, one of the biggest things if you suspect anything was wrong during the labor. For instance, if the nursing staff was acting a- acting strange or the doctor or it was a prolonged labor where you had to have supplemental oxygen or have to be put on your side multiple times or the, your labor plan was different than what you had discussed with your obstetrician initially, one of the big things to look for is um, developmental delays. And that can be inability to roll over, to stand up, also issues with muscle tone, eye issues, breathing issues, feeding issues, really, you know, the things that kind of normal babies in their same age group would be doing. And unfortunately, you know, those things aren't really that noticeable until maybe three, six months into life. So to your point, Stan, in New York, we have a a notice of claim uh, requirement for city hospitals, which this is one of the most unfair things of all in all of medical malpractice for poor, disadvantaged uh, moms who have to deliver in public uh, um, uh, hospitals and medical facilities is because let's say that there was an injury at birth but it's not able to be recognized by the mom until maybe nine months of age. And there's only a three-month notice of claim statute, meaning that if you are going to sue a city hospital, you have to file essentially a two-page document, which is a notice of claim, within 90 days from when that injury occurred, okay? So if you aren't even able to tell whether or not your baby might have a birth-related injury, And you can't even tell until the ninth, 10th, 11th month of life, you're already at a huge disadvantage because then you've already blown the statute that you would have no clue even existed. And this is what happens a lot of times with with city hospitals uh, in this very instance. And I've actually brought a case where the mother didn't – no one would have known because the baby didn't didn't meet developmental milestones around a year old. And we actually had to fight the case all the way up to the appellate division – to file a late notice of claim in the case and made some cool uh, new case law on on that case but that's that's one of the main things is is the developmental delays if you're worried about it just keep a close eye on the baby
1: is that notice of claim is that to be pled with specificity and the reason why I ask is it's almost like and this is obviously we're we're talking completely off topic here but if you're going to have a child that is if you're going to have a deliver at a city hospital you almost want to file a notice of claim within the first 90 days right. just for the sheer sake of and the shit sake of a uh, having something out there in case something does happen, but if you're required to plead with specificity as to these specific injuries, well, that really is not a strategy.
2: No. What you're talking about, it does not have to be pled with specificity, but it does – I mean, you have to know essentially you know, what your claim is. I mean, I guess that you could put in a general claim. At least something is better than nothing, but to your point, I mean, it, it's so difficult. So that's horrible. It's horrible because, first of all – People are by nature not litigious people. I mean, if you've never dealt with a lawyer, you know you never want to start to deal with one or have any issue with your kid or have to worry about this stuff. And people just might not have the resources to be able to really work these types of things up, which can be very complicated cases. And you do need the right type of lawyer who's able to have the right experts look at it and get medical records, which all take time. So it puts it puts the patient and and the, the mom and the kid at a big disadvantage in, in those types of cases.
3: It sounds like though, you know, a lot of these birth injury cases what you're talking about, the parents don't even realize there's a birth injury when they're leaving the hospital. It's not until you start seeing the the missed milestones, delayed development stuff like that. So, you know, is it sort of incumbent upon the parents, when they notice these things, to go back and kind of think about the delivery, think about things that might not have seemed as important initially, just to sort of double check in their mind, see if something might have been missed?
2: Definitely. But, you know, I think, especially with labor and delivery, it's such a crazy experience that people generally aren't thinking about, you know, how is this doctor going to mess up this birth or what what's happening. So it can be hard for people to recreate the whole experience, especially if you're if you're at the hospital for 15 hours before you're finally in the later stages of labor and and ultimately have a delivery. You know, a lot of times also people are going to be super hopeful if you have the potential of your child being injured. At birth, you're going to err on the side of my baby's going to be okay. You know they're saying that you know with time it'll it, he'll be okay, he or she will be okay. So I think people are are just by nature going to be more positive like with with that and not really look into what exactly was done wrong. You know that that's the that's the big problem is that there are overt injury cases where the injuries are clear as day, and then there's cases where. You know, It's more nuanced where it's a hypoxic injury, which might not manifest itself until several months you know, into life.
1: Now, you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, you're seeing a lot of these claims coming out of city hospitals, which disproportionately impacts the lowest socioeconomic demographic. Post-COVID, you know, having seen so many medical professionals quit the profession, I remember seeing a, it's kind of a documentary, I think it was about a hospital in Elmhurst, Queens. I don't remember, was it Wyckoff or?
2: Yeah, it was, I think it was Elmhurst Hospital.
1: Zelmer's Hospital. I had so many- Which is the city hospital also. City hospital. Yeah. I think it was like 30 physicians quit over a span of like nine months because of how overcrowded and under resourced they were and how many hours are required to work. Is this getting worse? Um, I think- Are more doctors having to spend a longer duration of time without having breaks and you're having very tired physicians not working with the full faculties and potentially making mistakes and errors that you wouldn't see otherwise? That. The mistakes that I see these days,
2: for the most part, are mistakes about how patients are worked up and treated in hospitals, not so much the staffing issue, but more so what goes into the physician or the staff's thinking in working up various diseases and and ailments. Um, I think with electronic medical records, and especially how Physicians are trained these days, which which have much, le- much more lax standards as far as the time that they have to be on call, um, the training requirements that they have, as well as the fact with, with electronic medical records and the fact that, you know, you go into a hospital, everyone, it's just a gut shot, you know, um, reflex. You order a CT scan and an MRI for any, you know, anything that comes through. I think that the art in medicine was always... You can figure out most of it from a, a, a good history and a physical exam, and that's something that is so lacking these days in medicine, in my opinion, from what I see every day. As far as the workup, that and and really the, you know, the thought process that goes into evaluating some of these more challenging cases, where physicians are just relying on you know an imaging study, which you know might not be the, in most cases you can find out what's going on with someone ninety five percent of the time with a good history. And that's just really lacking, I, I, I find, it in these cases, big
1: time. The last question I'll leave you off with is, and again, this is uh, maybe a bit of a stretch, but are we seeing in terms of the amount of cases you've litigated? And I don't do med mal. done a little bit of MedMal at my firm in the very beginning, and now we outsource the mal. It's, it's so difficult. It's so expert laden, cost intensive with about 70% of these cases ending up in defense verdicts. So I applaud you for trying these cases and having so many successful outcomes. You're One of the better MedMal lawyers in the country. How often do hospitals try to hide and cover up their mistakes, and how do they do that?
2: Well, I think the the whole process really is, is a to a certain extent, a, a cover-up of this entire thing. I mean, they have high-priced lawyers to extend these cases, to elongate this entire process, to make it absolutely ridiculous for patients to get real answers and real justice in their cases. Hiding as far as medical records go, I don't know how often that really happens. In this particular case I was talking about before, I mean, for a fetal heart tracing to just go missing, that is really suspect. And I've seen other thing, other acts of that in the past. But um, I think that the process itself for medical malpractice cases is so against patients from the outset, you know, the chips are just stacked against them from the beginning because of how hard these cases are and how difficult they are to prove. And just like you said, I mean, they're the most expensive cases to litigate, the most you know time-consuming. And I see more and more that not as many attorneys actually want to litigate them because the process is just impossible, especially with the medical malpractice carriers, the insurance carriers, who are the absolute worst, um, who never settle cases, who will take these cases to the bitter end, even if they know that they're wrong. Um, a lot of these hospital systems are run by these doctor groups that always side with the doctors that cannot be reasonable. So it's an uphill battle. But, um, you know, if you love trying these cases and, and litigating them, if you have a valid case, then nothing's better.
1: With your skill level, the only suggestion I have to you is why wouldn't you take your practice nationally and pro hoc vice into any med mal case you possibly can find in great birth injury case? Because your talent level is extraordinary. And there's not that many of you guys that do high level med mal work. Well, I mean- It's less and less every year. The
2: one thing about MedMal is if, if it's a departure here in New York, it's a departure anywhere. I mean, medicine is a universal thing, so I'd totally be up to it. For the past 15 years, I've honestly Matt, I've, I've had so many cases in New York that have just consumed my time. So maybe in this next stage, now that I feel like I actually kind of know what I'm doing at this point, that, that'll that be the next challenge. But I, thank you, man. I, I appreciate that.
1: Well, I appreciate having you on here. I can see an under-the-weather stand guy, here, so I'm- braving this, uh, his own personal elements to be here on this podcast. So I appreciate, Stan, I appreciate having you, Kyle. Thanks, guys.
3: Hey, thanks, Kyle. I do appreciate it. Thanks for coming out.
1: Yeah. Learning about trial technology in the first podcast and learning about you know birth injury law and medical malpractice, is just it's outside of our normal wheelhouse. It's good, stuff. So thank you very much. And this I'll wraps be back up, anytime. We'll have you again. This wraps up another David vs. Goliath podcast. Thank you again. Have a great day.
0: This episode of David vs. Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N law.com or call 866-965-6242.